0: and welcome to Authorise, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and the man that we'll be speaking to today we've spoken to before, so we'll talk about him in just a tick. It is a terrific book uh, of Australian history, uh, that I'm sure you're going to enjoy and I'm sure that uh, is going to become a very important book for a lot of people. But let's talk about our podcast partners first up and that is CSCG. You can uh, jump on their website right now and have a look and uh, check out the people you'll be dealing with, the services they have on offer. They're a terrific accounting company, uh, cscg.com.au or you can give them a call. At Real people, 99748333 and really nice people too to do, uh, to do business with. 99748333, no matter whether it's superannuation whether it's taxation it's nearly that time of the year again uh, whether it's uh, investing whether it's uh, getting loans whether you want to know about what's going on with the you know the share market they can tell you all those things they have experts in all those fields so jump on their website and uh, check it out cscg.com.au our guest today is a man who's been on the program several times before he is a uh, prolific even though this book is uh, one that uh, has been in the making and been in the uh, producing for a long time now 6 years in fact I've Talking about Peter Fitzsimons, his new book is called the Opera House. Yes, uh, there's nothing more Sydney than the Opera House. Maybe Peter Fitzsimons is more Sydney than the Opera House. He doesn't live far from it. It's an iconic, uh, obviously, structure. It's an iconic story. What Peter does, and it's a unique skill that he has, is take a slab of Australian history, turn it into modern day language and then present it. Now, if that's the way that we can get people to relate to you know, great explorers that he's written about in the past or iconic uh, structures like the Opera House, well, good on him and Good on you for grabbing the book and having a look at it, as people do in droves. He's one of our best-selling authors, so let's get to him to tell the story about the Opera House, the book, and the Opera House itself. My guest today on Authorised is Peter Fitzsimons. You've done it again—six <laughs> years in the making from uh, from go to woe with this one. Uh, so it's obviously a a project of great uh, of great love for you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Kevin. I guess when I rank my books in terms of the best pure story there's ever been, it is The Shipwreck of the Batavia followed by the Catalpa Rescue. I love those stories like no other, but I've never worked on a book like the, this one, The Opera House, that I have handed to the publisher with more regret because I just, I just loved it. I just loved writing about it, getting my head around it, getting to the bottom of stuff. And I wanted. Are we allowed to swear on
0: your show or not? Tell me, yay or nay? No. Yes, you can use the title that you wanted to call the book.
1: Okay, I wanted to call the book "The Opera House."
0: Comma. Where the fuck did
1: that thing come from, anyway? <laughs> and and they wouldn't. The publishers. The publishers wouldn't let me uh, because I thought it was too vulgar and that using that title that that word in a in a cover is overdone. Because um, that other fellow did the subtle art of not giving a fuck. But I wanted that. That was the question I set out to answer. Where, where did that thing come from? <laughs> How was it that 1950s Australia, which was surrounded by a white picket fence, had meat and free veg every day, went to church on Sundays, and voted nothing other than liberal for Menzies for 23 years? How did we be so daring, so progressive as to come up with that and to you know, organized for Jornaldson, the genius, the Danish genius to come up with the design and then put that, a, a scale model of that design, on the cabinet table before 14, 16 white fellows of the New South Wales cabinet, they look at it and go, "Yeah, yep, yeah, we'll build that bastard. <laughs> I mean, it is just amazing. And so that was what the book set out to answer. And part of the answer, I mean, I think the person that, under under credited is Joe Carl, the premier in Sydney. Carl is only remembered really for the Carl Expressway. Yeah. Everybody's forgotten what he, what he did, and I didn't know anything about him. But then you look at he, his skill. We had a European conductor here by the name of Eugene Goossens, and he came for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in the late nineteen forties. He sta- he eventually was made an offer to come back to be the full time conductor and to be. Effectively, the dean of the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, he was the one that got in Carl's ear and said, Look, it's fine to play at the town hall, Sydney town hall, but the acoustics are terrible. We're playing in a barn. We need a designated opera house. And Carl was put, said, Okay, well, let's do that, puts out a competition. And he says he's under attack from the beginning from people saying, Why are you putting money towards this elitist institution? And he said, because my opera house, this opera house will not be for men with bow ties and women in, in, in mink coats. This will be for washerwomen, for waitresses, for labourers, for, for plumbers. It'll be for everybody. There is no reason why Sydney people, New South Wales people, Australian working people can't enjoy the finer things in life. So Carl guided it. He was the one that, that organised the opera house lottery, so the money put to it wouldn't come from general revenue. But because... I mean, and Carl himself, Joe Carl, was a man whose idea of a good time on a Saturday night was the Wenty Park dogs <laughs> with a meat pie and tomato sauce and a beer. And why not? Love it myself. But he's the one that guided it through politically. The story of Eugene Goosin that got involved in a witch's coven up at King's Cross, led by the chief witch, Rosaline Norton, who came from the very unlikely place of Linfield on the Sydney North Shore. That's the story in itself. He ended yeah. up being arrested at Sydney Airport, charged with uh, bringing obscene materials into the country. I mean, stuff that these days wouldn't raise an eyebrow, but it's a compelling story. Did you? What did you think of the
0: story of the kidnapping of Graham Thorne? Uh, the, the layers of this are quite uh, staggering, really. When, when it, is a, it is a rabbit hole. You must have got lost a few times.
1: Well, I well, yes, and I had I had the benefit of two full time researchers on it, and you know they kept turning up stuff, and I kept turning up stuff where what what I wanted was stuff that you know hadn't been published before. My favorite, well, I've got so many favorite stories, but a couple of, a couple of the ones when they do the competition, there are two hundred and thirty two submissions that come from around the world, and they put all the you know all these architectural designs in a room at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. They have four judges, one of whom is the most famous, one of the most famous architects in America, Finnish American, by the name of Eero Saarinen. And he he flies in three or four days late. They have a uh, they have a uh, the, the short list of ten. He has a look at them and says, "Well, it's none of them. What else have you got?" <laughs> he goes yeah. through them laboriously for the next three hours until he pulls out submission number 218. And he says, there, gentlemen, there is your Sydney Opera House. They look at it and say, well, you're crazy. You know, can't it be built? Looks terrible. Forget it. And he says, he gets them down to Bennelong Point, and he puts them in a rowboat. He pulls, he pulls the oars himself. He gets 200 metres off the shore. He turns the rowboat round, and he pulls out the drawing of the Opera House and says, now, imagine... Just imagine that this was built, in, instead of those tram sheds, that this was built there and three lights went on over their head and that's what got it over the line. Then Carl announces the winner at a, uh, at a, a, at a press conference here yeah, at the Art Gallery and there's immediately a by all and sundry. A lot of the press looked at it and said, this is madness, this is crazy. And one there was one particular standout. Harry Seidler, who was Australia's most, well, became Australia's most famous architect, and Harry Seidler was one of the finalists in the competition, had done well, but he had the generosity of spirit to say, "This, this the judges must be congratulated for this choice. This is an, a work of outstanding creativity, and he backed Woodson from that point on. Woodson originally for four or five years worked out of uh, out of Denmark and then New South Wales government said, well, you better come and uh, oversee it on site. And he puts his family in a plane, gets them tickets. New South Wales government would only fly him economy class. <laughs> and they're about two hours out of Sydney and Woodson notices that they're being socks handed out up the front. And so he summons the hostess, as they then were, not flight attendants, and says, excuse me, excuse me, uh, you're handing out socks. Could I have some socks for my family and me because our feet are cold? She says, no, no socks for you today. That is for first-class passengers. She comes back an hour later and says, excuse me, are you your and the Danish architect? He says, yes. She says, we've just got a radio message from Sydney, and they want to know there's a message from the Queen of England. She is in Sydney at Mord at Circular Quay with her Royal Yacht Britannia, and she'd like to know if you would like to join her for lunch after you land. He says, yes, yes, thank you. I would like to do that. And the hostess says, and would you like some more socks <laughs> for you and your family? <laughs>
0: and
1: so, so those those sort of stories, the Graham Thorne story is the Opera House Lottery was so popular, and we were such an innocent country that we put on the front page. You know, every time somebody won, we put them on the front page. Here's Johnny Bloggs. Johnny and Jenny blogs and they have won a hundred thousand pounds and they live at eight Flintstone Avenue, Pebble Rock. <laughs> and so on this, the eighth winners were the Thorn family from Bondi living at eight Edward Street, and here's their fine family, and with their three children. And the few days later, the Thorn family, now with a hundred thousand pounds in the kick, send their eight year old boy off to school as they always did, never to be seen again. They got a phone call, his wife got a phone call. Saying, "Give me twenty-five thousand pounds, or you'll never see the boy again." Um, and so, you know, massive police hunt, police search. Finally, a month later, the body was found. The kidnapper had inadvertently, or manslaughter, killed him. And um, well, it, manslaughter, I think, was the final final verdict. And the uh, this wonderful policeman pursued pursued the killer, how to find him, and they he. The body was found in a blanket on the Wakehurst Parkway on the northern peninsula of Sydney, just up from Manly, Seaforth, Balgala. And he takes it to Sydney University under the microscope. What can you see on this blanket? And what they found was pink mortar, red brick, leaves of a cedar tree, cypress trees, I think, and particular kind of grass. And so he then goes to Balgala Post Office and says, You know, who of who you have seen a uh, a house like this, there's nothing. But a month later, he's out still making inquiries at one particular house when the postman comes up. He says, oh, you're the bloke that uh, the bloke that uh, was talking about the thorn murder. He says, yes. He says, look, did my mate Jacko get a hold of you? He says, no, why? Because Jacko thinks he knows the house. And Jacko did know the house. Mm. And that, that broke the case and they arrested the murderer, the manslaughterer, the killer. Um coming off, he, was, he was, had left Australia, was on a ship uh, heading to Europe and they arrested him at uh, Salon, which is now Sri Lanka. One of the many extraordinary stories in the book, Kevin.
0: Yeah. Uh, was that the most surprising one for you uh, in terms of the, the ripple effect of what, what building the Opera House brought to the, uh, the city? I think for me
1: the surprise, I, I had never quite appreciated the engineering triumph. I'd always thought of the Opera House as an architectural triumph. I live about four minutes' drive up the hill from the harbour, across from the harbour, from the uh, Opera House, and every day when I'm out and about, I don't go straight home. Every day I drive down to Cremorne Point and I gaze out upon the Opera House and I've been doing it for the last 25 years that I've been living here because I just look at it and I feel better about life. I always feel pretty good about life, but I feel even better looking at that opera house, it just lifts you. And the thing about it was that uh, I always appreciated that it was an architectural triumph, but I had no idea the difficulty the engineers had with with building it. You know, Woodson's line was, I always want to be on the edge of the possible. Well, to many engineers at the time, it looked like he'd gone well beyond the edge of the possible into the impossible. And it very nearly was impossible, but they had Ove Arabs, O'Varup was a famous Danish-English, Danish-British engineer, and he formed an alliance with – he saw the design. I think he was in Dublin from memory, and he saw the winning design in the newspaper, contacted us and said, look, if you're looking for an engineer, this is the kind of stuff that I do. They became absolutely strong, firm friends, wonderful friends, and then they fell out. They fell out because – Woodson was such a perfectionist, didn't want to rush anything. Whereas Arif, not unreasonably, you know, wanted the schedule, wanted wanted drawings to be on time. I mean, people don't, people, I would have said that if you'd said to me how many rooms in the opera house, I would have said, oh, I don't know, you know, 25, 27, you know, a couple of big performance spaces and a few offices. There's over a thousand rooms in that opera house. Yeah. Over a thousand. And it is. Extraordinary the complexity, not only of getting those sails to stand and be able to stay standing in a high wind that was a, a work in itself, but just the complexity of working out you know the where where does the electrical wiring go? How how big are the ceilings? Where's where does the door go? Where are the fire escapes? Uh, heating, air conditioning. And just and it's all gotta it's all got to be a cohesive whole and where the performance is, you've got to have enough space for the people while also having correct acoustics and it was it was staggeringly difficult, particularly when Woodson I think at the height he only had a dozen drafts people because he wanted to keep control of every detail, where when he resigned in February of sixty six he was replaced not by one architect, not by two, but by three architects and his dozen draft people, they, they ended up, there was 118 at the end of it. Yeah. And it didn't take 18 months as they thought. It took seven years. And that's how complex it was.
0: There's a lovely line of the book, Pete, where um, someone says an architect can only be as good as the client allows him to be. When the client's the New South Wales state government um, you know, you know, you're going to have uh, dramas, and there, there was no shortage of yeah. almost subplots of, uh, of people trying to blow this thing up, almost uh, not not literally, but you know, figuratively, uh, as the process went through, so they could have their mark on it. Yes,
1: I love the I love the poem. People come, people go. Talk of Michelangelo, Michelangelo, but I sit here. Speaking of Michelangelo when we think of his mightiest work, which I guess is the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Imagine if the Roman government had been involved and imagine if that had <laughs> uh, imagine if that had a budget and a schedule and you'd agreed to do it for a certain amount and you'd agreed to do it in a certain amount of time. And in the end Michelangelo didn't have that. I guess he only had to answer to the Pope of the day. Yeah. But it was that it was that clash between an architectural genius and a massive bureaucracy that did, to be fair to them, had to had to answer to the people. They couldn't just keep putting tens of millions of dollars out there they, and they couldn't just say it'll be finished soon. They had to give a, a timeline. And so it was on the pressure that Woodson was under that he offered his resignation, never thinking that they would accept it. He thought that if I if I give them my resignation, they'll come to their senses They'll give me time and money and space that I need, but in fact, it was the Askin government, led by Minister David Hughes, who said, "Yeah, your resignation, great. Taxi, please take the thoughts into the airport and give him the bill." And so then, you know, it was Peter Hall, who was a rising young architect, who took the took the took the weight, most of the weight, with David, uh, David Littlemore and Lionel Todd, and. Hall worked on it for the next seven years. And in many ways, the architectural fraternity turned its back on it because the idea was you shouldn't shouldn't take over uh, somebody else's work. The point was made to Hall, listen, if you don't do this, if we don't find an architect to take over the drawings of Woodson, then we're just not going, you know, this will just be an empty shell. This will be an empty shell on the shores of Sydney Harbour it sounds actually, she sells seashells by the seashore, which <laughs> <is> shells, <laughs> Um They And that was a fair argument, so Hall took it on. And I, in terms of writing this book, I dealt with most of Hall's children. Yeah. And the youngest one is a young woman by the name of Antigone. And she came, she doesn't live too far from me, and she came for a cup of tea. And I said, well, she'd met, just mentioned that she'd been walking down by Kirribilli And I said, it must be wonderful for you to gaze out across the waters of Sydney Harbour to look at the building your father, masterpiece your father helped finish, is it just wonderful? And she said, No, I see the I see my father's destroyed life. Mm. And, you know, it was a pretty strong statement, but pretty much, well, demonstrably on the money because Hall we became an alcoholic and and you know, one one account had him nearly homeless. I don't think it was quite that bad. But it, well, in fact I know it's not that bad from by virtue of his children, but he certainly finished as a wreck of a man and with a wrecked career, because in part because of the extraordinary pressure placed upon him by, by building the Sydney Opera House, but he got the job done. And Davis Hughes, who is the minister that took over, that was the one that presided when Utsun resigned. He's usually the bogeyman, the evil one, Utsun hero, Davis Hughes, and I. You know, much of that deserved. He, he was very abrasive and had no idea of architecture against that when he died Woodson himself contacted Woodson's widow and said look you know we had our differences but if not for Davis Hughes we wouldn't have got we we wouldn't have the opera house we have today
0: yeah uh, which begs the question with today's bureaucracy would the would it would it get built in this day and age
1: very interesting question you'd need a politician of staggering vision like Joe Carl and amazing skill to put out a big unifying project that everybody could be proud of to to withstand the slings and arrows of the critics. And I mean, I say that as somebody who's been a critic of, you know, stadiums in Sydney and I stand behind it. I think it is outrageous the amount of money that has been put towards stadiums in Sydney. So, you know, if you were to come up with a vision, I mean, like, you know, I suppose in Australia, you know, there are all talks of grand, Grand projects like railways that'll go, what do they talk, I think uh, Melbourne to Darwin, things like that. It needs amazing vision, but also great skill to bring the people on board. The the great project I'd like to see the government get behind is turning us into a republic. There's an idea, and I say that as chair of the ARN, but there's an idea what a great unifying project that would be to say we Australians can do better than to find our head of state from a family of English aristocrats but Kevin, don't get me started.
0: <laughs> no, no, I won't. Um, the 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 language that you've written this book in is the language of today. Was that a, was that a difficult thing to to bring that uh, that sort of '60s thing and '50s and and even before that, obviously? Well, I
1: try. What I do with my books is I don't want them. I want my. I do nonfiction and I want them to read like fiction. I want this to read like a great story. I want to put the reader in the moment. And so I don't want them reading about the moment. When I first started writing, I wanted to tell a great story and bring people in close to the campfire. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you a killer story. I don't want that anymore. I don't want me in it. I don't want the campfire in it. I want the reader in the moment. So I want the reader sitting on Hudson's shoulder as he first starts you know, doodling on the pa- on the paper, coming up with shells and coming up with a huge uh, huge base for it, like the like the the Mayan pyramids with the steps. And I want them there when Joe Carl first looks at it and gasps. I want want them there when tragically when when Graham Thorne is killed. You know, I want the reader in all these moments.
0: Yeah. And so I use contemporary language to put the reader there. Yeah. And it works it works beautifully. It works beautifully. Thank you. Beautifully. And it's uh, it. Uh, I mean, it is in many ways. It is sort of soap opera-ish in terms of uh, the the. As I mentioned, the layers of stories that, uh, and and the and the characters of the people that uh, the develop, like a Davis Hughes that you mentioned, uh, through yeah. the uh, as the bad as the bad man in the in the uh, in the story. That's the one. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Kevin. My pleasure. Uh, what are you working on now? Long Longhand. Oh, Wow. The Battle of Long Tan. Oh, yes, a much celebrated. Uh, uh, gee whiz, that'll be interesting. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you, Kevin. Bye-bye. My thanks to Peter for his time and his incredible works uh, continue. As you uh, heard, uh, Long Tan is the next one. That'll be uh, terrific to, uh, to read. Uh, but check this one out. It's available now, The Opera House. By Peter Fitzsimons and my thanks, of course, to his publishers at Hashit once again for uh, organising Pete to join us on the program. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget there's plenty more back issues of this particular podcast uh, with a, a variety of authors on all sorts of different subjects, be it crime or be it sport or be it cooking. They're all there. Uh, just check it out uh, where you found this podcast is where you'll find other episodes of Authorised. But thanks once again to our podcast partners. They are the people to talk to if you want to know about what's the best way for you uh, to make the most of your financial situation. They will help you with that. They're called CSCG. You can find them on 9974 or jump on their website, cscg.com.au. I'm Kevin Hillier. Till the next time on Authorised, read a book. It might be the one I'm talking about.